Hi, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode. I am Vivian, one of the co-hosts of the Pulse podcast. Today, we're super excited to have Nancy Brown, the general partner at Oak HCFT, join us as our guest today. Our purpose is to capture the pulse of healthcare innovation spanning leaders across the healthcare ecosystem. Oak HCFT is a growth venture capital firm focused exclusively on healthcare and fintech. Oak HCFT's latest fund raised $800 million in 2019 and currently has $1.9 billion under management. As the GP of Oak HCFT, Nancy serves on the board of Maven, Cricket Health, Axial Healthcare, Firefly, and Unite Us, three of which have been featured on the Pulse podcast, coincidentally. And I also had the pleasure of interviewing Dan and Taylor at Unite Us two weeks ago about their amazing efforts for COVID-19. She's also super involved both in the entrepreneurial ecosystem as a board member for the New England Venture Capital Association and in the Boston healthcare scene as a board member for the Boston's Children's Hospital and for Mass Challenge Health Tech. I would keep listing all of her impressive involvements, but that would take the whole podcast. So without further ado, welcome Nancy. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I uh, listened to the podcast of Unite Us, and they did such a great job that I'm a little intimidated that I'm not going to live up to the to the great <laughs> interview you did with them. Yeah, I mean, they were awesome, but I, I'd love to hear your perspective. I think as a woman investor, it's going to be really unique, and obviously, I'd love to hear about your involvements across all of your portfolio companies, um, which have been obviously featured on our podcast, so we clearly love them. Um, before we dive into the beginning, um, we'd like to ask a fun question. So the question is, what did you want to be when you were growing up? All right. Well, you will not believe this answer, but it's true. <clears throat> so I wanted to be an exotic animal reproductive physiologist. Wow. What is the source of that inspiration? So I'm old enough that I grew up or I was in high school during the days of the Endangered Species Act. So there was a lot of discussion about, um, about the destruction of species. And um, like many, many uh, bright-eyed kids, I was so inspired by this that I decided that I was going to dedicate my career to uh, studying and um, learning and reproducing animals that were near extinction. So that was a very specific thing, but I carried that interest all the way through college. Wow. And so did you intern at, like, where, where do you find internships there? What do you do specifically for reproductiveness? <laughs> um, yeah, they don't let you just wander around the wild, uh, wild cat cages at, at the Bronx Zoo. So um, yeah, so you just go a traditional path of, so I was a, I, I was a pre-vet major and I had a minor in uh, reproductive physiology, uh, which uh, there's just no end to the jokes that go on about that later in your life, uh, but mostly around domestic animals. And, and so I, I have a life science and agriculture degree, which most people don't know. So I spent a lot of time thinking about reproduction and farm animals since most colleges don't, uh, don't have a bunch of exotic animals around campus. Awesome. I guess the next segue is how did you find yourself in uh, healthcare? It's a sort of similar theme but a little bit different animal. <laughs> exactly. Well, I love to tell people that I, I, every bit of my career was planned perfectly. I, started, I laid it out when I was young and I just followed the path. None of that is true. What I did follow was just my interests. And I always was interested in science, as I just mentioned. And coming out of college, I became a 
a research scientist and trying to make a very long story short, what I discovered quickly was I was very good at organizing researchers and maybe less good at the research side. I realized how disorganized um, all of the folks who were putting grants into the federal government were and coordination with other institutions. And that led me from my days of thinking of getting a PhD or going to veterinary school to getting an MBA and thinking about actually managing physicians and others in their, uh, in their pursuits. So that was my transition from pure science into business. I then had a, I, as you'll see a little bit of a trend with me is that I get very fixated on specific areas. And so throughout graduate school, I was very interested in healthcare delivery in particular, and not just traditional delivery, but new delivery system models. And in fact, there haven't been that many of them. So the one that I was focused on was the one that most people know through Kaiser, which is a staff model HMO, where you have one institution responsible for all of the healthcare delivery and all the healthcare insurance. And so that was, the, that was all the work that I did throughout graduate school. And as soon as I got out of school, that's exactly where I landed, which was in healthcare and delivery through a staff model HMO. Awesome. And I guess... Starting from there, you had a really impressive career, um, and then you became an entrepreneur, successfully selling your company to McKesson within 18 months, and then working as a healthcare executive at leading healthcare corporations such as Athena Health. Can you tell us a little bit about the key points of your career transitions and what it felt like to make those decisions? Yeah, I'll try to stay at the top, the top of the waves, <laughs> as they say. Absolutely. So I was at Harvard Community Health Plan during the day. I was running large multi-specialty clinics, and at night we were doing clinical process reengineering. It's something I like to talk about. My team hears me talk about it every single day because it's where I discovered that if you study healthcare the way you study car manufacturing, you will find that there's a process that, if uh, followed, will get you to an optimal cost and quality outcome. But healthcare is a cottage industry. So, meaning we have a lot of independent practitioners who are doing things their own way. It's not as organized as other industries are. So, while I was at Harvard Community Health Plan, I began to get into the world of designing process. And to make, again, a very long story short, we didn't have tech. Uh, so, this was in the mid-90s. There, wasn't, there weren't computers at the point of service. Epic was a scheduling system. Cerner was a lab system. The internet was not used in the home. And so then I pivoted from being in this nonprofit to trying to figure out how to bring new technology to the point of service. And I did that becoming an entrepreneur. I joined a team that was very advanced at United Healthcare. They spun out at United Healthcare, the advanced technology team. And we started our first company to bring the first web-based electronic medical record to market in 1997. Were you always thinking of staying as a founder or what was the thought process there? Yeah, it was a, you know, it was a sequence of experiences. So that was the company you referred to that 18 months after we created, it was bought by McKesson. So I went from a startup in Minnesota with about 50 people to a fortune four company mm -hmm. and oddly became the head of marketing for the healthcare IT division. Uh, and it was an absolutely essential bit of my background. So it was the largest healthcare company in the world. And it, there was a lot about uh, going to market and selling and, and growth and channels that I learned and I brought back into, into my entrepreneurial world. At my heart, though, like early stage companies. And so I left McKesson to go to Athena Health which was a later stage than the first company I started, but much earlier than McKesson. And it had a very distinct profile, which it was one of the first tech-enabled service companies. So if we go back to my desire to have uh, processes that are consistent in healthcare, 
Athena today, I think, has 100,000 providers that whose revenue cycle system, all the billing and all of the cash collections and all the banking are done consistently within about 99.9% accuracy all around a, a pure process that has been absolutely vetted to make sure that it works properly. And I joined Athena to build clinical processes. I'm more on the clinical side. As I think you know, I was there during the formative years of three years before we went public and three years after we went public. Um, and in fact, I'll give, give you another um, hint to my transition. The lead investor at Athena at the time was Annie Lamont, who runs our firm. So you'll begin to see as, how the dots connect. I'm curious, you were at Athena Health three years before the IPO and three years after. What was it like going through that transition and being there during the change of the company? It's such a great question and it's such a great experience. It's one of those great experiences that it's great once you look back on it, going through it was a little bit um, hair raising. So honestly, because Athena, like many, many of our companies was in a emerging market, it was very hard to predict exactly what month over month results were going to be. So imagine going into an IPO where you'd almost never made the numbers uh, that you told your board you were going to make due to factors that you were just still learning about and having to go into an environment where consistency was the key. So we spent the three years before we went into the IPO making everything more predictable in good ways. I was responsible for growth and so we did things like ensuring that our revenue was coming from all sectors of the industry so we didn't have dependencies on just large institutions. So we had a third, a third, and a third coming from small, medium, and large practices. We had a whole nother body of work and professionalizing of all of our operations. So we'd had a lot of fairly young, very smart managers building ops, but then we brought in some executives from places like Fidelity who immediately recognized that what we had done was heroic, but not exactly right. So we did a lot of professionalizing of, of the work and every deal counted. So I remember a lot of planes, a lot of nights, a lot of um, counting of, of goals around growth to get ready for the IPO and to be in, in good stead. And it all worked out. I think if uh, it was a long time ago now, but the company was never missed a number after, uh, you know, for at least the, the time that I was there and for quite a long distance after that was incredibly successful and showed the world that you can deliver a consistent product to 100,000 providers. Yeah, clearly have been super successful as being one of the best EMR systems that you could partner with today. After the three years post-IPO, what was the career transition point? How did you find yourself at Oak HCFT? That's a great question and one I answer quite a bit. So I, I actually came out of that and did one more early stage company, which is called Medventive. The whole world of providing analytics tools for providers who were taking on risk clients, risk contracts, very, very interesting to really go back into the world that I had come out of a long time ago and see where it had evolved to. That's a whole nother podcast, but <laughs> learned a lot about what was really going on in the market. And then we sold that company to McKesson also. I ended up back at McKesson and I was asked to stay on for, um, I did not stay on in my company. I actually went to the strategy group at San Francisco and they were at the time beginning to think about a massive transition to what became change healthcare and the movement of some of those assets out, which can now be discussed since it's all public <laughs> and lots of, ha lots has happened since then. Um, and it was actually within McKesson that I began to think about uh, venture because they were going to put a venture fund in a strategic fund. And I worked with the team there to, to get that established, but then something remarkable happened, which was Annie Lamont, who I 
respected more than, than uh, anyone else I had worked with in, in the venture world came to find me to tell me she was going to start a new firm. This was six years ago and asked if I would like to join. And it was, it'll go down in history as maybe the best timing of my career. She was just, uh, had raised 500 million and asked me to join. So that was my transition. I honestly, there's more to the story, which I usually tell fairly publicly, but I suddenly had become a single parent uh, to my only child. I needed a job. I talk about this a lot because of all the unattended consequences of having a very complex and time-consuming career that you often have trade-offs in life. And I suddenly had to figure out how to not work less, but work smarter. And when you're on, a, on an operations team like Athena, there's not always a lot of ability to, to manage your life. So I thought investing would be terrific. I could be an investor and I could contribute a lot to my companies and then also be able to be around enough to get my daughter launched. Kind of crazy that your idea of work-life balance is being on the board of so many companies, but you know, I can't imagine what they made you do over there at Athena Health that was more work in comparison. <laughs> and moving to Oak HCFT, I'd love to hear your take on the unique investment philosophy, as well as more about how you envision the future of the venture fund, and also just what areas do you specifically invest in? So this is like being asked to talk about one of your children, you know, just nothing makes me happier than talking about my firm and talking about the companies we've invested in. And our investment thesis, I think, is very unique. Certainly was six years ago when we started the company or maybe 10 years ago when Andy started to invest in tech-enabled service companies. We're all about, on the healthcare side, cost and quality, being able to substantially move the needle on both of those. And we are very biased towards tech-enabled service companies, so true service companies. So if you go back to my comment around it's really all about the clinical process and it's all about being able to have a point of view about what it should be and have the tech enablement to be able to take that point of view and scale it across the country in a consistent way. This is really not the basis of every single one of our investments, but many of them, which is find a problem that's undeniable, not one that exists based on who the president is or what today's thinking is, but one that's undeniable. So we started, for instance, with end of life. There's, it's undeniable that getting people into a program for palliative care, everyone wins. That's the other thing that all of our investments have winners in the, the patients, the providers, the insurance companies, they all win because the process that's being applied now is not, is not good. So you see that time and time again, whether we're doing it in women's health, in renal care, a lot of primary care, and all of them them have the factor of new thinking, a strong point of view, and really good understanding of how to apply technology mm -hmm. to the problem. I know we'll go into this a little bit later, but generally, topics are you most excited about in terms of what's the next biggest thing? I know that's a really hard question. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we're still in that are uh, that still need a lot of attention. I guess a very hot topic right now is virtualization of care. So we were always interested in both primary care and virtual primary care or virtualization of care. So for me, this was obviously all pre-COVID, but the whole point was that we need to go to where people are. Years and years ago, I met with an insurance company who was looking for some of their high-risk patients, and in particular, some of their obese patients, and wanted us to find them within the Athena practices. And I said, you know, I think a lot of the patients who are very sick 
who need care are actually not going to the doctor. They're living their lives. They're just trying to do what they, they need to do every day to get to work, to take care of their kids. And we need to go to where they are. And so there's always been a focus at Oak to think about that. You know, you can call it the retail side. I just call it to go, going to where people are. And that's a virtualization as well as for years and years and years, I've worked with retailers. So we really like the idea of companies like Paladina, which is on-site near-site clinics near the employer. I've also worked with the with Walmart and CVS and Target and others about bringing care to integrate it into people's lives. It's very interesting in terms of the hot topic of what's going to happen to virtual care and to telemedicine post-COVID. And I think we're all, we would really have been thrilled to have missed the pandemic completely. But in light of the pandemic, it has really made a lot of folks realize that you can get care and get really good care remotely. And so I think we'll, we'll continue to see that growth. I and mean, we have a bias, which we can talk about in a minute, about what that really means and how that will be sustainable. I also think there's, a, there's just a tremendous amount of work still to be done around getting those points of view, getting those, the efficacy of clinical process out there and more consistently applied. We're seeing that right now as, as you know, it, unfolding in front of everyone is a lot of opinions about the best approach to things. And eventually you do get to the best approach to be uh, absolutely discovered. And the question is, how do we get it to, in this case now, millions and millions of people, how do we get a clinical process out there in the world? I like how you touched upon the point of accessibility because a lot of healthcare is, as we see today, it's pretty, there's a lot of inequity in terms of who can access care and how can access care, especially given the rural and urban divide. And so obviously you probably see this a lot with being on the boards of Firefly and Maven, how this virtual care is becoming more accessible to their patients. And given COVID-19, one really interesting point is, like you said, a lot of regulatory change is being temporarily implemented, such as telemedicine deregulation across states the waving of co-pays, uh, COVID-19 screening. There are a lot of opinions out there, but I trust yours. What are your predictions on how healthcare technology will change as a result of COVID-19? And how do you think this will change things in the long term for healthcare? Yeah, it's, it is a great question. And uh, thank you for <laughs> respecting whatever my opinion is. And I'm, I'm busy listening in on other podcasts about people I respect and their opinions. And I think everyone starts by saying, I don't have a crystal ball. So yes, I don't have a crystal ball. You know, I, I think that, you know, there's no, nothing that's been really like this, but I have to say, let, let's just take telemedicine um, as one thing. So there's a whole bunch of things that we've been doing where we've been absolutely, or I should say, most people have been absolutely sure you have to do it face-to-face. -face. We didn't touch upon mental health yet, but that, that's a big investment thesis for us. We, we are really interested in things that affect medical and social determinants and, and mental health are, are those two areas that we focus on. But mental health, I spoke to, I, I won't name them, but a large mental health facility here in Boston. I spoke to the chairman and, and the, uh, some of the resistance to delivering um, services has not been with the patients, it's been with the providers, right? They don't feel like they can have the same experience. And so I think we're finding, I think there's a lot of experience with the providers now saying, yes, this is not, in some cases it may be, it's you know, sort of a spectrum of where it's optimal and where it's a little less optimal and has to do with sort of the need to physically lay hands on the patient. But for something like mental health, I think forever we, it will be changed. It'll be changed by the fact that the providers know that they can use it, that the patients know that it works. And suddenly we'll see that we're getting to more people than we've ever gotten to before. As I said to this person, isn't the whole point to get access? 
to provide access. So I think that's terrific. And I think that for some of our providers in a local health system here, they went from 1,500 telemedicine visits to 90,000 telemedicine visits. Those are providers that are using telemedicine to get to their patients. And in fact, they're using the, probably the same thing we're using, which is they have a HIPAA compliant Zoom um, or whatever. And that, that's exactly what they're taking advantage of. So I think we're not going to see the spike in telemedicine continue once there's physical access back. We'll probably hold on to, I don't know, I'm making this up 20% of it, but we'll be able to begin to open up you know, new opportunities for people to, to access care that way um, in a very deliberate way. So there, and there's things like you mentioned about the licensure. There's a lot of politics. So when this goes away and politics come back, politics of people who get paid for these licenses in each state, et cetera, you know, we'll see that it won't, it won't be an automatic thing. A lot of your portfolio companies are making huge strides to address COVID-19. And a lot of them are in a really great position, yes. actually, to ramp up their solutions to meet the surge in demand. I'd love to hear what you've seen working with on how I spoke in the Unite Us, they're standing up rapid response networks uh, for their partners, but I'd love to hear your insider perspective on how that's uh, evolved across your portfolio companies. It's actually pretty amazing. I'm very proud of the companies. And, you know, I think everyone listening knows what it takes to wake up one morning and realize that everything about your life has changed from a, uh, from a CEO and executive team standpoint. Um, so yeah, so I'll just do a quick, a little quick tour around um, the kinds of things. So Cricket Health, which is our renal company, this is a topic, it hasn't been as well discussed as other, other things, but putting people into uh, dialysis chairs uh, three inches apart is not a good idea. So going forward, uh, they're all about getting people to home or putting off dialysis. So we're seeing uh, implementations being moved up versus versus any delays. So people are recognizing that that's a huge problem we have to, have to focus on. Our companies that are virtual primary care, like Firefly Health, you mentioned Galileo, which is providing virtual care to, to Medicaid patients and others. They're all out there providing COVID screening and also using this as an opportunity to get mostly get folks who don't have primary care providers you know, available. Maven, you will hear more from Kate when you talk to her. So Maven is women's health. It is content and it's also a telemedicine network. They took the telemedicine network and made it available for Mass Health, which is the Medicaid program here in Boston or in Massachusetts, for women and children who needed to get um, questions answered. So imagine we've heard a lot about this. You're pregnant or you're about to deliver or you just had a baby and lots of questions about should I actually go to my appointment? Is it more dangerous to go or to stay? We have a number of other companies that are doing COVID uh, virtual triage and, and then a whole lot that are actually delivering care. Um, Unitas will stop on for a second. Um, you did that great interview with the co-founders, but imagine this world. So for people who don't know, they're a platform that's used to connect supply and demand around social determinants, but they can really be a conduit to any community-based services. So besides the fact that states have seen record-setting contracts, uh, meaning the time to get a contract signed, uh, moving very fast at the state level. So some states are engaging with them the way North Carolina had to put this in place to deal with the most vulnerable populations and to keep all the services going that were there before and then to add new services. Right. So you're going to see, I think, just a tremendous use of that platform to meet the needs of, of our most vulnerable populations. Right. It's really incredible, all of this technology that's helping to fuel the problems that we see in healthcare today and how we're seeing that's 
more than ever needed in our current healthcare system. So really inspiring to hear about the stories from your portfolio companies and all the work that they've been doing. I would love to shift gears to hear from your perspective as a VC, how Oak HCFT is shifting in response to this environment and how they are, how has your team shifted its focus? How much has it shifted? Maybe you're focusing more on portfolio companies now. So that's exactly right. Um, the team is, I have to say, we feel pretty efficient because we're not traveling all over the place. So it's, um, so we're, we're all home. You know, we are all connected and working together, I think, uh, just in an amazing way. And yes, we've had at least a month of deep, uh, deep dives into our portfolio companies in a trying to help in any way possible. So we've done everything from supporting valuations of, of different government programs to understanding the way people are dealing with real estate issues, the best practices around remote employees, helping with recruiting, all of the above. So it's been sort of all hands on deck. I think the first set of calls i put out there, we're just, we're here, what can we do to help you? So I think that's gone gone really well. And then we have a lot of business as usual. There's still um, funding being done. We're still meeting with companies. Uh, there are, you know, the, the, the obvious question is, you know, what's changed? Well, if you have a company that's selling to hospitals and it's a nice to have, um, not sure that would have been something we would have funded anyway, based on our portfolio and our interests, but, um, but there are companies that are absolutely affected by COVID because they're not going to be able to get attentions of their buyers, but there are others that are either status quo or they're getting tailwinds because of it. And then there's others that are like right around the corner coming out of COVID or coming out of this, you know, this heightened state around COVID, other things that are being neglected, like the opioid battle. So Axial, which is one of our companies now, is um, definitely seeing people getting ready for the next wave of, of problems. But yeah, it's, it's, it is business as usual, but of course, new environmental factors to consider. What is your perspective on sort of making investment decisions remotely how do you get to know the team through a camera? Yeah, I, I might be I might be unique in my perspective on this. I, I have my company's based in Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm based in Boston. I've been a remote employee for a while, if you will. And and I'm usually the only one remote and everyone else is physical. And I think that hybrid is really hard. When you're talking to a room full of people and they they can't always see you or hear you, you can't get above the noise. But having everyone virtual is a real leveling of the playing field. I just love it. Also, the way these technologies work is the person who's talking usually sort of gets the screen. And so um, you do have less people talking over each other. So we're finding it really effective. Now, having said that, the thing that's missing is the walk around of the company. You get a lot of feel for the culture of the company when you're physically in a company and you're seeing everything from you know, I don't know, the dog in the corner to the buzz of the energy. Some companies you walk into and there's just energy. And other times you walk in and you think, oh, everyone's leaving at 445. That's not, not really the kind of kind of company we expect. So I don't want to paint a picture that we will go exclusively to online, but we can get pretty far. And really that's the only piece that's missing. And we have had some interesting stories of people, uh, in the case of candidates, not, not uh, investments, where they have met in parking lots and stayed in their cars six feet apart, but they just wanted to physically <laughs> see somebody and uh, be able to have a little bit, feel a little bit of that uh, chemistry and energy. Right. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, people are doing interesting things, assuming they're in the same state. Touching upon the, the diligence aspect, what are key questions that you ask or key criteria that you look for in early stage healthcare deals? 
so a lot of our really early stage to full, full disclosure are repeat entrepreneurs. So we have a lot of our early stage companies because if you look at our portfolio and you try to reverse engineer our, you know, our stage of investing, it would be hard to do because we have everything from startups, uh, seed, all the way through to buyouts. Most of the early, early stage again are, are um, um, uh, people coming back to us for the second or third time. So that's been super exciting. But we certainly do look at other early stage companies and we start with, these are the basic things. What is the problem that people are trying to solve? What is the addressable market? It just is remarkable to me that we see so many companies where the total addressable market is not very yeah. large um, and it's never going to be large. And so that's the first thing. And then is it an undeniable problem? Is there is there debate about it? Or is it something that everyone knows is a problem? And then it's really all about the people. You know, we have these mismatches where you have a great idea, but not a team who can execute or sometimes a great team and not the right idea. And so we do, we work pretty hard to make sure we've got, you know, the right combination, the culture we talked about, and then uh, really the ability, you know, that CEO or that C, the C-suite really have to want to partner. Mm -hmm. um, so this is something that's not talked about beyond the business being the right business and having the right ideas is you have to have a team who wants to partner with the firm. You can imagine with my background, hopefully people like Dan and Taylor opt into, uh, who are the Unitas executives, opt into using Oak because they want to interact with our team on a weekly basis to get support. If you get a CEO who really has no interest in having mentors um, or listening um, or evolving, then, then that, that is something that's, that's not useful. Humility is huge for us. We back the best and the brightest and you'll never hear them represent themselves as the best and brightest. So that is important. And their commitment to their team, COVID has done many things, but watching our CEOs react, it's almost emotional in my response telling you about this, but their reaction to protecting their teams and making sure that they're safe has been remarkable. There's a lot of ingredients that go into it, but when you have those, and any problem you have, and you will have problems with the business idea or the execution or assumptions, you'll get through you them. You kind of mentioned this, the considerations that are overlooked, but I'd love to hear if there are other things that you've noticed are areas where other investors don't typically ask or don't typically emphasize as much. I don't know about other investors, but not, we go heavy into services. So there's investors who don't want service companies. They want tech companies. In fact, early, I think in our establishment of our company, I would meet with, meet with entrepreneurs and they proudly tell me that they didn't have services because they thought that's what I wanted to hear. And we fundamentally believe that the service and the tech have to be combined to get to the outcome. You hand tech to a bunch of people, if they use it without the service, that you probably you know, won't get to a consistent uh, outcome. We feel like there's less emphasis on, on the point of view, maybe the proven point of view, exactly operationally how people are gonna do it. And then yes, I think there is probably of all those things, um, not enough emphasis on the team dynamics and the culture and really understanding what we mean by that. So that has been, again, as I say, you everything is about weathering the storm and, and sometimes it goes smoothly, but most of the times there are things like, like we're dealing with right now and having incredibly seasoned, thoughtful CEOs has been priceless. Right. As I do interviews, we see that clinical component is super important to ensure that the technology is being applied the right way to ensure you have buy-in from stakeholders and partners because it is such a complex system you need to work with everyone in the healthcare system. And also we always ask about culture because it's always interesting to hear sort of the different values that the, that the entrepreneurs have because even though they sort of 
have similar veins of values. They are always like a little bit unique in terms of um, how they run the company and how they really motivate their team. Great hearing your perspective on that because I think it's often overlooked. You know, you kind of get excited about the company and then you forget the culture component. Yeah, I mean, imagine that two days after this all, there was a declaration by the president um, about uh, about COVID. Um, we we asked for write ups from all of our CEOs on their response, and it was an amazing thing to see all of the things that they needed to consider and how quickly they needed to consider it. And all of those things that we talked about, humility, also the ability to, to pivot when needed, um, meaning go to online implementations right away, understand that the mission of some of these companies was even more urgent than ever. So it, it was remarkable and humbling to see the amazing response from all of these folks during this time. I have a specific question that I actually sourced from my friend because you know, it's like, I have an opportunity to ask Nancy anything. So the question is, it's actually from a founder who's really passionate about the space. But the question is, what do you believe is a solution to the misaligned incentives with third party payer system that's driving healthcare prices up? The core of the question is the US healthcare system is facing a moral hazard because the patient receives care from doctor, but then the healthcare insurance company has to pay for it. Yeah, it sounds like I, I would have asked that question years ago. So the, the reason I started off my career at a staff model HMO is because 100% of the care and 100% of the of the premium dollar is managed by the same company. And there is no misaligned incentives. There's not. We basically had so much money to spend. We would think about exactly how to spend it, meaning things like immunizations were as important as, you know, as hip replacements and, and getting mammograms. So all of the preventative care, it was as important as, as, as chronic care as was important as the acute needs. You know, what I found, and again, I feel like there's no there's no quick answer for this, is that what we've tried to do over the last number of years, maybe 10, 15, 20 years, which is to move risk to providers, we did it in a very suboptimal way. We gave them some quality measures. We had some of their patients at risk, but not all of their patients at risk. And in my last company, which provided analytics to these institutions, I would go in and realize that if you're in a clinic, every patient who came in had a different incentive plan. So we actually made things worse, right? We made things worse because you can't manage patients that all, where you have different incentives for each one, you can't manage them. You can't say, oh, this is Nancy. I'm going to you know, take hold of all of her care because I'm getting incentive to do that. And, and there's Susie, and I'm only just going to make sure she has um, you know, the care she's come in for today. So that's a long way of saying that we really have to go back where we have fully delegated risk full risk, that the delivery system is fully at risk for all the care being delivered to that patient. And that will 100% of the time lead to the right incentives and right decisions. So this smear of what I call a smear of quality measures and quality payments over the top of the healthcare system has not worked. That's why you see us investing in things like Devoted, which is our MA plan, where they're really taking this holistic, they are the insurer, and um, Village MD, which we haven't talked about, which is one of our big primary care companies, which is taking huge populations. They're in all sorts of environments where their job is to improve the quality of patients, and they do it in many, many different ways, depending on what the different environments, from owning physicians all the way to being an overlay to primary care physicians. This story has not been, been fully written, and the more that people take on risk who really understand how to think about populations and can affect them, the better off we'll Sounds be. Sounds like a really good answer to my friend's question. Women investors are still a significant minority among VC investors. We're seeing a lot of progress on that front, but I'd love to hear your perspective as an investor. Also, how you balance being a working mother? 
Yeah, I, you can imagine I pulled into a lot of discussions about gender. I hope that we're all just considered good at what we do, regardless of what cohort we're in. You know, I think it comes down to mentorship. So we're actually a very, we're not a women-led company. We don't view ourselves that way. We have a lot of women uh, partners. Uh, Annie's our founder. Patricia runs FinTech. Um, and then we have a lot of associates. We have a, we have a good balance of associates that are, in, uh, uh, that are female and I think it's all around uh, being a mentor and creating not only an environment for people who can come in right out of Wharton or wherever, uh, but folks who can uh, come in and feel like it's a culture they want to be in. So what I like about our company, which has nothing to do with gender, just has to do with the way that we run things, is that no matter what level, if you're coming in as an associate, if you're coming in as a partner, uh, we all work together. So every single one of my boards, I have one of our staff members assigned to me to work with me and they hear it all and they learn it all. And we have the assumption that everyone who comes to work at Oak will eventually rise up and become a partner. And so this is where it starts, which is we've got to get more people coming in. There's an interesting balance, as I think I mentioned, and I should probably clarify, this is the job that I took to, to create balance in my life. And that's not because I work less being on six boards and doing what I do. It's because I can work. There's two things, which may not be obvious Two, One is I can work differently. So at times I can shift my review of the data room or meeting with my team to uh, a different time of day um, or be a little bit more flexible. And then the other thing is at the end of the day, it's my CEOs who are running their companies. So in terms of mindshare for me, I'm there, I'm helping them, but they go back and they're running the company on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it, it gave me a little bit more flexibility to do that. And then I have to say, if my 18-year-old my was sitting here with me, she would be able to tell you about every one of my companies and wow. every one of the CEOs and their strengths and what they do uh, and what their missions are. So you quiz her? Uh, yeah, I know. She, is, she loves what I, what I do and she... Um, she likes talking to people about it. So I guess that's my way of saying, get your kids involved early in what you do because they'll be super proud and excited and want to learn more. So you can incorporate, incorporate them in, into your day-to-day -day life at work. That's amazing. One last bonus question and then a little bit outside of healthcare or it could be related to healthcare. Everyone seems to be sort of adopting a new hobby. What's something you've created during COVID-19? Okay, well, I, I want there to be in your mind a low bar related to this. Yeah. So I'm not known for my any of my domestic abilities, I have to admit. So. <laughs> but I um so I am trying to perfect a lemon square recipe. My my boyfriend loves lemon squares. The ones that he loves, he cannot get right now because we cannot get, we cannot go into this particular store. So every weekend I make a new lemon square recipe in hopes of getting close to the ones that he loves. And I'm trending positive, but I'm not there yet. Okay, so do you have a recipe to share? I'm working on, I've had a couple. So if and any of the listeners out there um, have a great lemon square recipe, um, send it to me, nancy at oakhcft.com. Great. When you finalize your recipe, we'll post it on our website. Sounds perfect. For everyone. Cool. Um, thank you so much for your time. We really enjoyed speaking with you and I really enjoyed hearing about your awesome work at Oak HCFT as well as the work that your portfolio companies have been doing to address the COVID-19 crisis that we're living in today. So really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And thanks for um, all the time you spent with our, our companies. I, they, they absolutely have loved doing the podcast.